It's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I want you to know I plan to sing that, but uh, because I'm getting over a cold, I thought I would spare your eardrums this morning. I love Christmas. I suspect I'm not alone, that many of you in this room love it as well. I'll admit I love everything about it. There's so much to see with our eyes and decorations and twinkling lights, so much to smell, fresh baked cookies and desserts and ham and so much to uh, feel with the warmth of staying inside on a cold winter's night. It does get cold in Mississippi. Maybe even once in a while, seeing the blanketing of a white Christmas snow. But the holidays are special for lots of reasons. And admittedly, some of us too, the holidays can be a bit of a challenge, a time of loneliness and pain, a time where we remember and we missed loved ones who are gone, maybe geographically or those who've gone to be with the Lord. But wherever you find yourself, along the spectrum this Christmas. The holidays are a big deal because we all love to be with the ones we love, don't we? The great drama and mystery of Christmas is that so does God. So does God. These next four weeks as we look at Advent, this season of longing and expectation, this season of hope, we get to consider the depths and the lengths in the heights, the whole gambit of what God went through to be near to his people, to be what we just sang about, Emmanuel, come in the flesh. This season which is so familiar to us, and yet every year there's something new, isn't there? It still comforts and it still surprises. That the highest of all would stoop so low to be born, And to begin his rescue mission. That the hands which uphold the universe are now so tiny that they could wrap themselves around your finger. All of this and more to begin a season of advent, of expectation. A season of longing for something bigger than all of us. So let's pray. Father God, meet with us now in your word. Be with us that we might expect to be refreshed, expect to be renewed, and expect to meet you again. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Forgive the preacher his sins, for they are many. But Lord, in all things, may you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to ask three questions and then see if the text can't help us find the answer. First question is, will the highest come down? Will God Almighty, who dwells in inapproachable light, who is transcendent, who is holy, 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 will he come? And secondly, how will he come? How is he going to come if he is to come at all? And lastly, why would he do it? Why would he do it? Well, to begin, we need to go back and turn into John chapter 1. We need to go back even further 
then shepherds and angels keeping the angels meeting the shepherds who are keeping watch over their flock by night. We need to go back further from the decree of Caesar Augustus. We need to go back to the beginning, and that's where John takes us. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God always blesses the reading and hearing of the word. You know, the opening of John's gospel is a little interesting. It doesn't, he doesn't start where Matthew or Luke start. He doesn't introduce us to Mary and Joseph. He starts in the beginning. Does it sound familiar? Like any other book you've heard in the Old Testament? Genesis. In the beginning, God created. And he made, it every, he made everything. All the life and light, all the goodness, the vegetation, our creation. He made us, human beings, in the flesh to be his image bearers, to reflect his goodness and character. He made it all. And John is telling us that the word, the logos, Jesus of Nazareth, this book which John tells us later in John 20, I'm writing, I writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, so that by believing in him, you may have life. So his agenda is that when we read this text, we come away different. We come away transformed. And he begins by telling us that the same Jesus who has come to save your life is the God who gave it to you in the first place. He's your creator. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's your maker as well as your savior. We know the story from Genesis, how God made Adam and Eve, but they sinned, they rebelled, they committed cosmic treason, they believed their own needs and wants were better than what God wanted for them, and so they fell into sin. And all of us have now been experiencing this distance, this darkness, this separation from our creator and our maker, such now that human beings don't want what we need. We don't want God. We need him. He's the very best for us. But we don't want him in our true original state and nature as sinful human beings. It's like at Christmas time. When you're a kid or even now maybe as an adult. I'm not going to tell you what I really want for Christmas this year. But you know what I need? Which is what I've asked for? Running shoes. I need to get back into shape. I don't want to. I don't want to jog and run, but I need to. I've now got a little baby boy, and I've got to be responsible, and I'd like to be around for a little bit. So I've asked for running shoes. It's a poor analogy, but it's true. We don't always want what we need. And a lot of things that we think we need, we don't actually. But God created us for himself, and sin separates that. There's this great chasm. There's this great distance. 
How do we close it? God was not pleased to allow his creation and his people to remain in that darkness and in that sin. He started a family, the Jewish people. And that family became a nation. And that nation was brought into captivity in Egypt. And then God miraculously rescued them and saved them. And he brought them out and he journeyed with them and traveled with them. And he brought them into the promised land. He took them home. And eventually they became a kingdom with leaders like Saul and David and Solomon. And it is in that period of the kings that I want us to look for a moment to help us with our questions this morning. Back to everyone's favorite book at Christmas time, Second Chronicles chapter 6. I know you've probably already read it over Thanksgiving, but let's turn back and look at Second Chronicles. What's going on is King Solomon has gathered all of Israel for an assembly. And that assembly also coincides with two important events. The first, which was a unique event, the finishing and the dedication of the temple. And the second was that it was during the Feast of Tabernacles. And both are important and both are related. (coughs) Excuse me. The Feast of Tabernacles, you'll remember, was a memorial for what God had done throughout the Exodus. That he, as he led his people out, he didn't just save them and tell them, here's your GPS and here's your map. Good luck finding Canaan. And oh, by the way, it gets a little hairy and dangerous in parts. No, he went with them. Not only did he lead them when they were going out, literally in front, but when they would stop and settle and put up camp, where was the tabernacle, which was the dwelling place of Almighty God, the meeting place of God? It was right in the middle. If you're ever wondering, does God want to be near his people? The scriptures seem to show us that this is a God who can't get near enough to his people. He dwells right in the midst of them, right in the middle. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a time when they would gather and they'd literally live in tents for a week. For eight days. And they would gather together and they would, it was a joyous occasion. They would celebrate what God had done, the provisions. It was a celebration of all his blessings. And not in the sense that we typically think of when we think of blessings. To be blessed, a lot of times we think that we have good health, we have our material possessions, we have our security, and our family, and all that's a part of it, no doubt. But to, in, the, in the Israeli culture, in the Jewish culture of that time, to be blessed was so much more. And you know what it centered around? Blessing correlated to your nearness to the presence of God. If you were a Jew and had your tabernacle or tent in the wilderness, you know what made you blessed? Wasn't your last name. Wasn't how many resources that you had, as good as all that is. It was how close you could pitch your tent near God's tent. How close God and you would find yourself. Now, to be on the outside of the camp wasn't mean that God loved you less. But God was telling his people and showing his people and giving all kinds of word pictures to say, you know what true blessing is? To be near the presence of God. And that's what they coveted. Most of them. They're still like you and me too. But they wanted to be near. And on the 15th day of the 7th month, 
they gathered together. And the temple was being built. God had dwelled in a tabernacle. David built himself a palace. He had a house. And David, as David did, was convicted of his sin and recognized the king of heaven and earth dwells in a tent and I live in a palace. So he decided to build a temple. But because David was a man of war, he wasn't allowed to, and a man of bloodshed, he wasn't allowed to finish it or build it. Solomon was the one who was commissioned. And it's finally done. A multi-year, multi-resource, huge project for the people of Israel is finally done. And he comes together and he prays publicly. He gathers all of Israel together and he stands up on the platform and then he kneels down. I'm not going to kneel. I might trip. And he spreads out his hands and he opens his mouth and he prays for the people to God and petitions. And this is what he says in Second Chronicles 6, beginning in verse 14. Listen to this prayer. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declare to him. Oh God, two things. There's no one like you in heaven on earth. And you're faithful. You've been faithful to my dad. You've been faithful to me and to our family, to our people. And we now have this temple. But here's what he says as we skip down to verse 17. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But God will, in, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. The single most important facet in building in the entire nation. And Solomon says, it's useless. Because it can't contain you. You can't be contained. The highest heavens can't even contain you. How cool are the Hubble telescope pictures to look at to see how vast the universe is. Our God is bigger than that. He created it. He made it. And what humility of Solomon to say this magnificent structure, this amazing edifice which we have just completed can't do what we thought it might do. Though God commands worship, they recognize that any attempt on man's part to bring God close is useless. We can't do it. We can't bridge the gap. Something or someone else has to. No matter how many temples, no matter how many tabernacles the people of Israel built, they were never enough, big or numerous. And so the question is asked, will God indeed dwell with man if you can't be contained? Are you going to come again? You've been faithful in the past and we know that your character is one of loving kindness. Can and will God even be close? Is he too big? Is he too far off? Can we know him? The answer Fast forward a few hundred years to our text today. John 1. The answer is yes. 
John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The answer is yes. He left heaven's throne and was born in a stable, essentially a feeding trough, probably in a cave in the dark on an unremarkable night. He's born. God arrives. He's made it. He does come. Will God dwell with man? Yes. And absolutely. Secondly, our question though, if he, if he will come, how does he come? He comes not in a way that anyone was expecting. He comes not in chariots of war with multitude of angel armies. He comes not as a God of Greek mythology or culture or an idol of our own making. He comes and he enters flesh. He, ent- he becomes one of us. God becomes a human being. Now that word flesh is interesting that John uses it. Because the word flesh in the Bible does not always connotate very positive thoughts about human beings. The flesh, the connotation is usually contemptuous. It's usually to describe man's condition of misery and suffering. To be, you know, when it talks about our struggle with the flesh, it's also there, can be used in the New Testament as our sin. John isn't saying that Jesus entered sin, but he entered a condition and a humanity that was tainted and altered by sin's effects. Literally, God, what other God is like this? The answer is none. Who enters our state of misery and suffering. He comes not in his palace, not insisting upon his own way, not demanding what is rightfully his. He comes as a baby, as a human being, with ten fingers and ten toes and eyes, and he cries. A little hair, maybe bald head, who knows? A little baby. He comes, but in a way no one was expecting to find the Messiah. He enters our condition, yet he is without sin. That's the big difference, and we'll talk about more in a minute. He comes to a small town that was no destination hotspot. And while almost everyone alive that night probably went about their own way without realizing anything had just taken place, an innkeeper has no idea that he just sent God out into the cold. The religious leaders will scoff later at the idea of God being wrapped in the arms of a teenage girl. He also comes as an interruption. It wasn't Joseph and Mary's plan to be in Bethlehem with a baby. It was the census that brought him there, but it was God who ordained it. She was a teenager, betrothed to be married, but not yet married. And all of a sudden she's pregnant. Now we know, as reading the Gospels, that the angel Gabriel said, you're with child by the Holy Spirit. But the angel only visited Mary. Imagine what the rest of the town would have thought and imagined. Have you ever known shame, disgust, rejection? Sometimes you are the, it's a consequence of your own actions. Sometimes you're wrongfully accused. And yet this peasant teenage girl is faithful and obedient. There's nothing remarkable about her. 
The only thing that's remarkable is her trust in God's word and presence. But it wasn't their plan. Joseph had plans to divorce her until God interrupted that. It was not the plan of Herod who wanted to rule the nation for himself with an iron fist to exalt himself as God, so to speak. It was not the plan of the Jews who were looking for a Messiah that would rescue them from political oppression. They wanted their circumstances changed. They wanted life easier and more comfortable. And that's what they thought the Messiah would come to do. But he doesn't come to make life more comfortable. And lastly, we might say leastly, the shepherds were probably just hoping for a silent and quiet night. I love the song. We're going to sing it. and Hold the candles high at Christmas. I love it. Silent night. But that night was anything but silent and anything but calm. Bursting light, shepherds singing, babies crying, cold. Amazing. But it's all an interruption. It wasn't according to plan, our plan, sinful man's plan. The highest coming down is the greatest interruption of all time, and it changes everything. We struggle, don't we? We don't like change. We don't like when life doesn't go according to plan. But never forget that Jesus' advent into the world for the first time is the change we desperately need. Changes everything. He was born a man and comes as a servant. And he shatters all kinds of expectations about what true greatness and significance is all about. He tells us that if you've done unto the least of mankind, you've done unto God himself. He's born to a peasant girl and he's the earthly son of a carpenter. He hails from a town that's so insignificant that later they'll gossip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And his coming, his advent, shows us that we don't have a way to insist or to look down upon anybody. We can't say to someone else, you don't matter. That's what it means, Jesus entering the flesh. One of. He came to save his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We're not building a country club where God is building a kingdom. And he's come to bring life and to bridge the gap that sin caused and to put us into distance. This is the King of Kings and this is the Lord of Lords. And when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you know where that word dwelt comes from? Back to the tabernacles. Literally, we could say the word became flesh or Jesus became a human being and tabernacled among us. It wasn't that he just, as God, came down into the world, was born on Good Friday, died on the cross, took the atonement for sin, was resurrected Easter morning, and then returned to heaven by Monday. He dwelt. He lived in the human condition. He grew up. He ate. He cried. He got tired. He got lonely. He got discouraged. He laughed. He walked. He did everything you and I do, yet without sin. 
And that's also what changes everything. Yet without sin. So he, when it, as the, will the highest come down? Yes. How will he come? He comes as a human being. He comes as God himself in the flesh. We need it to be that way. Because you see, only perfection will do for a holy and just God who demands perfection. And because we're tainted by sin, no matter how hard we try, you can't fix your life. And you can't appease God's wrath. But the good news is God himself took care of it. And he became the solution that we need. He's God in the flesh. He's perfect. But he's also a man. He's one of us. Because you see, it's not just that sin is atoned for, but our sin. Every thought, every deed, every desire you've ever had that was wicked or sinful. Every single one. The ones you've even forgotten about. Is, is taken to the cross and is atoned for. Because he's one of us. He came such a great distance for us. But it begs the third question. Why would he do it? Why would God, who doesn't need us, why would God, who is perfectly content and happy in eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why would he come? John tells us as well. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. (coughs) Excuse me. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came down and became like one of us so that we could behold his glory. And in beholding his glory, we might become like him. He came down so that we can go to be where he is. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in John 14? Don't be afraid. Same words that the angels used to the shepherds. Don't fear. When life interrupts, when things don't go to plan, do you praise or panic? The Lord says, don't panic. But Jesus tells them, this is why you don't need to be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me, for I'm going to prepare a place for you that in my Father's house are many rooms. He's coming to take us home. He's done this so that we could behold his glory, which is the greatest good. Talk about what we need and what we want. Exalting and beholding the glory of Almighty God is the greatest gift he can give us. And he does it not because he needs it. God is not an egomaniac. We are. His glory is our greatest good. John is talking about when he says we have beheld his glory. He's talking about the transfiguration. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. He took them up to the mountain for a moment In his earthly ministry, the veil was torn back. And Jesus in all of his splendor and majestic glory is seen for the first time. And what are the response of the apostles? They want to stay. They don't want to leave. They're not bored. They're not thinking, well, you know, we got a lot of stuff to do back down here. They're beholding his glory because they're experiencing the greatest good and most wonderful gift. The true majesty of eternity. And they want more. And that's why the word has become flesh. But he's also done it. Ephesians tells us 
chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Because of his great love for us. He did it because he loves you. Now, we've all heard that, I know. But we need to remember it. You need to hear it every day. God loves you. Wicked and mess that you are. Me too. God loves you. The glory and the glory that is breathtaking to behold is honestly not seen most fully in the cries of the babe in the manger. It is seen in the cries of the man fully grown upon the cross. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For in that moment, all of your sin and mine was placed onto him. And when he cries out, it is finished. It is finished. The distance has been taken back. Emmanuel is truly come near. That is the glory of Christmas. Those tiny hands we see in the manger will one day have nails driven through them. Those little lungs that are working themselves out for the very first time will one day be pierced. And he did it all willingly and lovingly to glorify his Father. And it's a glorious mystery because we, it means we are now saved and free. He came to die so that we might live. He came down so that we who were once far away, aliens in a strange land, can be brought home. He is forsaken so that those who are in Christ never have to be. Next time you feel alone or unloved, remember Christmas. Remember the highest came down. Remember that God draws near to his people. For he loves to dwell with the ones he loves. In conclusion, I want to read a quote that I thought of as I was watching The Wizard of Oz the other day on TV. And you'll get The Wizard of Oz reference when I read it. But it's by Frederick Beekner. He says this concerning Advent. For outlandish creatures like us on our way to a heart and a brain and courage... Bethlehem is not the end of our journey, but only the beginning. Not home, but the place through which we must pass if we ever are to reach home at last. The longing of Advent is really a longing for home. Jesus, the Prince of Peace and co-creator of the universe, came to bring us home. We're not all the way there yet, so we still celebrate and we still hope. But the highest still comes down. He comes down in this meal that is set before us. Which reminds us of the past and his goodness. It presently lifts us up into heavenly places to feed upon Christ spiritually. But it also looks forward to that day. When Jesus will sit down with all of us. When it will be a family gathering. And he will drink the cup. And we will all be truly blessed. For we will all finally be home and near our Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how, how magnificent you are. Lord, we know and acknowledge that you didn't need to come to this earth. You didn't even need to create this earth. You did it out of the sheer goodness and graciousness of your holy character. But Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinners 
We acknowledge our desperate need of your renewing grace and your everlasting mercy. We pray that you might touch us again this holiday season, that you might reach out to us so that as we gather with the ones we love, we'll never forget that we're on our way home. In Jesus' name, amen.